Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, this week, I have a colleague, uh, Laura Lane, with us today. Laura um, as is, is a sp- spiritual growth and development specialist. So, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roxanne. So, I'm uh, going to read a little bit about Laura, and then we're going to jump right into things. Uh, Laura, she's touched thousands of people through powerful stories of resilience and strength. She specializes in providing resources and supports to parents and caregivers of children who are diagnosed with cancer so they can live each day with, with hope, strength, and courage. She's the author of Two Mothers, One Prayer and the host of the upcoming um, podcast, Hope, Strength, and Courage for Cancer. So, Laura, welcome. And uh, I know this is a topic um, that would be dear to so many people's hearts. I, I know, you know, obviously losing, you know, when you hear that word, um, it, it oftentimes stops most of us. But when you hear about cancer with children, that's something that, you know, brings you, I would literally say that it brings people to their knees thinking that, you know, little ones could be kind of um, inflicted with, with such an ailment. So tell me, Obviously, I know a bit about Laura's story because I've heard uh, Laura speak. She's a phenomenal speaker. Um, and I, I recently was uh, privileged to hear a part of her story, which uh, was quite riveting for me. So tell, tell the listeners and the viewers kind of a bit about your path and, and kind of how you ended up being uh, working um, as a spiritual expert. So in 2011, my 12-year-old daughter, Celeste, was diagnosed with an extremely rare form of cancer called penioblastoma. The odds of getting penioblastoma is one in seven million. And that particular year when we were thrown into the world of childhood cancer, um, Celeste was given a diagnosis and a treatment plan, which required 30 rounds of high-dose radiation, followed by three to six months of high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell rescue, um, following a protocol that they have down in the St. Jude's Hospital in the United States. And we were at the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. And at that time, um, when, when all of this first happened, it was such a huge shock. Um, for our family. And I, I had been previously trained just six months earlier, I had been trained by Bob Proctor, who's a personal growth and development expert in Toronto. And uh, he teaches worldwide. And he had taught me um, some key things, understanding the mind. And one of those key things was understanding fear. And what that is, because that's the first thing that I went into was fear um, of, of what that was, what this diagnosis meant for my daughter and how we were going to get the help that she needed. And as I got into those, that emotion of fear, I realized, wait, what did Bob tell me about fear? Fear is the lack of knowledge. 
So I'm like, if I'm afraid, it means I don't know something. So what do I need to do? I need to arm myself with knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the next step for me was not just knowledge, but I needed to know that everything was going to be right in the world. I needed peace and I needed um, comfort that I needed spiritual guidance and everything that I had learned in the past um, about faith and miracles. I'm like, we need a miracle. Like, well, how do you get a miracle? Well, everybody says that miracles come from faith. I'm like, but how does that work? How does faith like, create miracles I don't understand and I thought I understood a lot before because I had been a missionary and I had taught um, Sunday school and I had taught all these things but when I was faced with this crisis all of a sudden I realized I didn't know half as much as I thought I knew and so then that put me on the path of research and learning okay how do we cope with this um, how do I arm myself with knowledge how do I how do I find out what faith really is so it can create miracles? So that became part of my study as I was supporting my daughter. And a huge part of, of what we did during that time was helping my daughter to remain positive and for, for helping myself and our family to remain positive. That going down a negative thought pattern and into fear, I knew wasn't going to do any of us any good. And so I began to reach out for help and any way, any place that I thought that could help us, I looked for the best help that we could get. And when Celeste was first diagnosed, I'm like, I don't want to know all the scary stuff. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be afraid. Um, and so I thought, well, then I, I'm just going to stay away from the internet. I didn't want to know all the scary stuff about her particular diagnosis. And a few months later, I got this um, nudge, this prompting that said, like, go and look, Laura, go and look it up. And so I very reluctantly, I think I had to get that sort of kick in the pants a couple of times before I finally said, okay, I'll go look it up. And I looked up um, penioblastoma and I found a website and it was by another mom whose little boy had been diagnosed years ago. And she put together this website to inform other parents. And as I'm going through this page and it's called Pineo Kids and she's listing all the kids she's found that have ever had it because there are so few children who were ever diagnosed with this cancer. And I'm going through this list and my daughter was diagnosed in February 2011 and she was 12 years old. And, and I'm seeing like, here's a 16 year old boy and he was diagnosed in 86 and here's a three month old and, and um, going through this list. And all of a sudden there's another 12 year old girl who was diagnosed the same month as Celeste. I found out afterwards the odds of that happening is 23 and a half billion to one. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And so when I, when on this website, this little girl is listed and there was a link to a care pages. So I messaged her family and said, my daughter is going, has the same tumor as yours. And, and um, she was diagnosed at the same time. And the woman who wrote back, the little girl's, little girl's name was Haley, and her mom's name was Lori. Mm. Here I am, Laura, and Haley's mom is Lori, and we have daughters who are diagnosed at the exact same time, and it was just, it was just incredible. 
And we found out that the things that we were doing for Celeste to help her remain positive and asking people to pray for her all over the world and asking people to set beautiful intentions for her and, um, and have spiritual practices, her, Haley and her family were doing the exact same thing for her. They had created a, they'd taken a map of the world and they put pins of all the places in the world that people were praying for Haley. And in Celeste's room, we would write, every time that we found out someone was praying for Celeste, we would take a sticky note and we would post sticky notes all over the walls so that she could see how many people and all the different places in the world that people were praying for her. And it, to me, it was just amazing. And the peace that it brought me to know that I wasn't alone, to have this other family out there who were going through the same thing and could understand that Lori and I had the same concerns for our daughters because they were both 12 years old. They're about to go through puberty and how was all this chemo going to affect them that way? And how does it affect them in their relationship with their friends and their family and being isolated and in the hospital all the time and, and their growth and their schooling and, and all of those things, we had all the same concerns. And so Lori and I went from being complete strangers, the best friends within a matter of weeks that we became each other's lifelines. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, um, and, and then it was at that time that I thought that this was so special, what was going on, this relationship that our families had built together. I got an impression again that I needed to write a book about the two little girls and tell the world about these amazing girls. And um, that became part of our focus as we went through everything was to document everything that was going on so that we could share our stories with others. So eventually, a few years later, I was able to publish the book, Two Mothers, One Prayer, Facing Your Child's Cancer with Hope, Strength, and Courage. Wow, what a, what a powerful story. So, so you kept connected throughout the, the, the time, obviously, like you said, you both became um, fast friends, which is just amazing. The support, the level of support that you may have been able to give to each other is something that is, I would think, profoundly spiritual because as moms, right, going through the same, you know, I'm sure they at times, um, maybe she, one person went ahead of went through something ahead of another and you could say, Oh my goodness. No, no, no. We already just went through that or we did this or, you know, it must've been such a comforting thing. Talk about having it someone right there with you. That's, that's kind of, you know, in the throes of it together. And, oh, yes. you know, I'm sure you, um, this kind of support that you gave each other, it's something I'm sure you've written in the book that I would love to, I would love to read it and learn more about it because of course, um, when any of us, and we've all, you know, I, I often say to have lived is to have um, been through pain, to learn more about how you go through it um, in ways, like you're saying, like, you know, the power of thought and prayer is, is so key. Because you're talking about in those little girls' rooms that they could see these little dots of, of well, what is prayer? Prayer is uh, putting out to the universe good things. You know, there. You know, you're going to be okay, and and we are all energy. So, you know, the yeah. impact of that much as much as it just been profound. It was. It was really. It was a really. It was an amazing experience. Hard, very, very hard. But I'm so grateful that 
the universe brought our families together so that we didn't have to go through this alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the key things that I share is you don't have to go through things alone, that people are amazing. And if that you reach out and connect and you ask people for help, people will do amazing things to support each other. So you learned, I'm going to say, you know, front row about what resilience is. You know, it's, it's one thing and we, you know, we hear these buzzwords out there, you know, about how to, how to cope through tough things. You've been, you've been there. You've, you know, I often say that, you know, it's kind of like I've gone through things in my life too. And, and I, I say, you know, you can, you can get support, but there comes a point where you got to walk through that tunnel and you got to go alone believing that there's, it's going to be all right on the other side. And it's very scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about what you learned firsthand about resilience, you know, through your own path and just all the study and, and also with, uh, with uh, Haley's mom. So I actually just learned something new just this last week. Um, I knew that, everyone told me, well, Laura, you're resilient and, and, and you made it through this so, so well. And I'm like, I don't know. I know there are certain things that I did and, and I share those things that they're important. Like if, if there were five things that I were to share, they would be the importance of reaching out. Um, so so reaching, I, reaching, reaching out. Yeah. So the five steps, first one being reach out mm-hmm. and then connect because mm-hmm. it, Sometimes we reach out, but then we fail to actually create connection and to create connection takes vulnerability. Um, and, and then also, but we also need to go inwards. That's a key in part is we need to take time to reflect, mm-hmm. to process the things that are going on and reflecting can be journaling. It can be praying. It can, all of those those things that we need to take that time to process um, the things that we're going through, the difficult stuff, and then express it. So go inwards first and then get it out. Because if we hold it all in, that's when we make ourselves sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't allow proper connection if we don't let it out. We have to to take, find some way of expressing the emotions that are going on. And that can mean going for a run, doing something physical. It could be writing it out. It could be talking with a friend and just crying until you just poured your whole heart out. Or it can be taking the time um, to, to do something creative. So one of the things that I did was I took up painting again. I used to paint years ago when my children were little, but when Celeste was in the, was at sick kids, I was staying at Ronald McDonald house and I would go back to Ronald McDonald house late at night. And the first little while I like, I think I killed some brain cells watching storage wars and hoarders late at night. And I'm like, okay, I can't do this. This is like <laughs> killing me. So I'm like, I got to find something else to do. Then I can't just sit and watch television. And um, so what I did do was I, I asked the staff at Ronald McDonald house, they had a, um, a craft room that they use for programs for the kids. And I said, Hey, can I use your craft room late at night? You know, when there's no programs going on, like, 
And they said, sure, I don't see why not. Nobody had ever asked them before. So I got some paint and some, um, some canvases and I would go in at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night and I would just start painting. And I painted all of the emotions out. I'd put some music on and then I would just put the canvases out and just paint mm -hmm. and poured out all the emotions I was going through at that time. So um, it was so healing and important to me to be able to express what was going on. And then the last thing, so reach out, connect, reflect, express. The last one is to love. Mm -hmm. It's easy when my child has cancer for me, for me to remember to love my child. But the key is remembering to love myself through this as well. And to express love and gratitude to all those people who are supporting Mm -hmm. my family, myself and my family, and to recognize that sometimes it's hard to take care of ourselves when our focus is on taking care of someone else, mm -hmm. that we need to love ourselves just as much. So really, because, I mean, to, for Celeste, she's seeing all of this. She's trying to stay positive, and she's probably seeing you and her dad around the clock doing all these things, but she's wondering how... How you're how you're caring for you, mm -hmm. right? So you're saying get better, take care, you know, all that good stuff. And then if your children kind of start to realize that you're not being a role model, like you're not, you know, sleeping or you're not leaving the hospital or you're not going for your walk. So even though I think it would be it would have been so hard to be away from her. I mean, as a mom myself, and have my son has been in the hospital, nothing, you know, serious. But I remember how. I, I, I just didn't want to leave for, for fear, like that, like, like Bob said, that fear of, you know, what if, right? But at some point you have to step into that is what you're saying and just realize I have, in order for me to continue to care for her, I have to care for myself first, which I, I can tell you from as a psychotherapist, when I see people or for being through things myself, it's sometimes hard to do that when you're having lots of different emotions, especially anger, right? Which we know, with this, you know, the stages of, of grief, you know, anger is the part that gets people stuck, right? Because they, you know, why me? Why the world? You know, how come this is a little 12 year old? I'm sure you went through all of those things. I had developed um, a bigger perspective. Um, and I had gone through things, very difficult things growing up. So when I was nine year, years old, my mother, my sister, and I, we were in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And both my mother and my sister were killed. Oh, my goodness. And from that experience, I learned to understand a number of things about life and death. First, that death is not a punishment. It's not a punishment to those who go. And it's not a punishment to those of us who stay behind. Mm -hmm. The second part is tied to it, that each one of us just has a different timeline. It's not that we get a guaranteed 82 years, and if I don't get my 82 years, I've been cut short, or my loved one's been cut short. It doesn't work that way. We each have a different purpose here on earth. We have a different um, time period that we need to be here, and it's all okay. For my mother, that was 37 years. For my sister, it was seven. And eventually we came to find out that for my daughter, it was 14. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it's okay. And it's not that they did anything wrong. It's not that I did anything wrong. It's just they did all they needed to do and it's their time to go. And I still have things that I need to do. So I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And so, so the support that you got at that time must have been really instrumental in you having this perspective. Like you're not, you're nine, Laura. Like, I mean, who, who supported you through that time? Because these are vital, vital, um, vitally important um, messages that you learned, right? Like mm -hmm. if you didn't get the right support at that time, you lost two, obviously of the most significant people in your life, things could have gone awry for you without the kind of right support. What kind of support did you get back then to, to be able to gain that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that resilience perspective that you, you obviously are sharing with the world today? Well, for myself, I didn't, the, the biggest key was understanding because of my situation, the accident that I was in, um, I we were hit by a transport truck. And there's no way I should have walked away from that accident. But that's exactly what happened was I came to and someone pulled me out of the truck or out of the car. And all I had was a cut on my finger. Wow. And my mother, my sister, they had brain damage. They were in comas. They had broken limbs. Their bodies had been destroyed, but yet I had not. I literally walked away. So I believe in, in divine intervention and that I had been protected that day. And that became the catalyst for such a strong relationship with my Heavenly Father, understanding that no, he had me here for a reason. And he continued, my life was not easy after that point. Um, I was went into, I went to live with my father and my stepmother and a stepbrother, and it was not a good situation. I was sent all the way to England to live there for a couple of years. Um, I was exposed to a lot of um, drinking and uh, drugs and, and things like that, uh, that my cousin was involved with at the time. Um, all the kids that I met in the village I lived in were drinking, smoking, doing drugs, having sex and sniffing glue at 13. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I was thrown into this world, uh, into another crazy world, but yet it was like, I was protected wherever I went, I was protected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just had this knowing because of the catalyst of what happened at that accident. I knew who I was and that God had me here for a reason. I didn't know what that was for 30 years. <laughs> I had a lot of questions like, can you please tell me why I'm here? <laughs> and, um, but I knew. Mm -hmm. And that was the strongest thing. Um, in my later teens, I went to live with a foster family and that was a blessing to me. And that was a support. It was mm -hmm. huge support to me. So there were some key people who were there that I sort of attached to who loved me and supported me, but there wasn't some big program. There wasn't, it was just part of it was just knowing, knowing who I was and, um, and my, and, and that relationship that was the biggest key out of everything that I went through for the next almost 20 years after that. 
So um, that, that, that space that's, you know, with, when we talk about adversity, and I mean, obviously you've been through, you have been through a lot of adversity really young. And, you know, I can think about in my career path as a psychotherapist or, or even, you know, um, I worked with trauma with the police and I, I, that's what my job was. I could, I could see adversity and you can always see, you know, the, you know, the initial reaction of people. And then, you know, afterwards, if you were fortunate enough to see them further along, you would kind of see some people that did one thing and some people that, you know, they, we all have to, none of us are wired for trauma or, or, you know, traumatic events. It has to go somewhere to your point, right? And the body and the brain, it cycles through it. It keeps doing that loop because it keeps saying, do something, do something. You got, you got to help me put, uh, you know, context to what's happened because trauma doesn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. And, you know, like with you, like you said, you knew within yourself, this, this is something bigger than me. Like, I mean, I, I'm put here for something bigger and, and you held on to that. And then, like you said, it wasn't all, there was this, you know, epiphany or program, but you start to kind of piece it together, even though at times life was still rough. Some people, you know, keep at it and, and listen to what's internal. Other people go outside of themselves to deal with the pain, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And that's what, like you said, if you don't, if you don't release that pain, um, or as a psychotherapist, I always say to people, you know, it's your, you got to honor, um, you know, bear and let go because it's already, it's already happened. You're still here. And, you know, what is it that you can learn from it? And, um, you know, what is it that you could do to help others? I often say with some of the things that I've been through in my life, like, what can I do? Because I've now learned so many things, not just about my, in my profession, but it's just in my personal life that I try to give back as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Because we've all been there, right? When it's yeah. dark, like, oh my goodness. And then you kind of start to realize, okay, I got to move, right? Like you said, I got, I got to move. I got to talk to somebody. I got to go help that other person that's not doing so well, or I got to get out of my, my eye space. And mm-hmm. then I start, you know, what I hear is you talk about serving, right? Yes. Right. You know, because when we get so insular, we get so focused on ourselves that, you know, and then we, we depress, we, we curl in and then we don't, you know, see anything above. But when you start to kind of open and, and give back, what are you doing? You're just saying, okay, I don't know what's going on right now, but I'm, I'm going to try to open up, and, you know, accept what's happening and help somebody else by be it a small act, you know, yes, um, yes. you know, it, and then you start to feel better, even though maybe you're still deep down inside are pretty sad. So clearly that was something that uh, you did very well. I think that's part of the key is we have to have that balance of going inside and reflecting and then get and expressing it out. We have to do both. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do one without the other, it doesn't work. You have to have that balance of doing both. And I think that was one of the things throughout my teenage years through, through my twenties, I had counselors. I had people who I could turn to that I could express the things and help me to make sense of it. And it's not like I did it all on my own. Cause I, I had, I had the psychiatrist at the beginning in the early eighties and then I had a counselor and then uh, later on I did EFT and I did EMDR and I learned the Sedona method and Ho'oponopono and <laughs> like, and they just become, it just becomes layers to let to mm-hmm. blossom that it's just like, okay, use this technique and it helps it help me to open up a little more and then use this technique and help me open up a little more. And yeah. So yeah, it's, it's- it's a process, but you have yeah. to, you have to know that, 
okay, I'm still, I'm just still carrying some pain. So what can I do now to get, yeah. how can I, where, what path do I follow to figure out how I'm going to release that pain and, and make mm-hmm. sense? Because pain, pain for none of us makes sense, right? And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, after a while, you're like, you know, what, your body holds the emotion and the body gives you the information. And if you sit in it, to your point, then it, it obviously it grows the pain versus releasing it. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, like employers and, and HR and people, you know, that may be working with others that are experiencing things, whether it's a sick child or, you know, people going through so many things, what kind of guidance would you say to people that are helping others? Like whether it's a manager or, you know, um, people at work, what kind of things should they not do? Um, What kind of things should they think about if they're managing to be able to kind of support people in a way um, that allows them the space to be compassionate, but also to be able to, to perform at a certain level? Um, having uh, also coming from um, working in a, uh, a small business uh, myself as a chief financial officer and and helping to manage some of the HR duties there um, and having seen that with some of our own employees one of the things we've done is making sure that we provide resources uh, and understanding that yes they're going through things and it won't be forever um, that the way that I felt when I was, uh, when Celeste uh, first passed away, um, six years later, I'm, I'm thriving. So it, it's uh, uh, recognizing that if we provide resources um, for our employees, it will help them to go to the next level and they won't stay in that stuck phase if we can understand them and support them and, and provide the resources. And when resources, one resource may not work for everybody. So having, um, it's like having a toolbox and saying, okay, which tool does this person need and helping them to access those tools. Um, so, and while we may not want and in HR, we don't want to do the fixing ourselves. But if we can say, hey, I've seen other people with this similar thing, and this this tool over here might really work for you, or would you like access to this particular tool, um, whether it's trauma counseling, whether that's a um, letting them know that there are resources in the community for a support group or things like that, um, helping them to find those tools because the faster they can find and start using the tools and, and know that they have the support at work to do that and being accommodating with hours so that they can access the programs that they need. I think that that really helps with mental health issues. For sure. So just being able to let them know that it's there, not to get too involved, obviously. Um, you know, you want it, you know, that maybe they're not, you know, you can tell when you know people, especially in a smaller business, you can kind of tell their temperament and you can tell if they're an extrovert and they're kind of quiet or, you know, they're struggling to do things that come to them really naturally, you know that they're struggling with something. Mm-hmm. To your point, it's just to, to, to not get into too much personal, but to say these are where the, you know, the professional resources are and we're here to support you. Just tell us what you need. I think that's a, a really nice way. And obviously things like EAP programs, a lot of, um, you know, some companies, most companies have it. So if you don't have it as a smaller employer, just being able to kind of guide them, like you said, in different resources within the community. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, a, I'm curious, with parenting Celeste, 
as she went through this, you know, I, I'm, and I, and I'm, you know, like I said, I, you know, having raised an, an, now 18 year old and, you know, you go through so much as a parent and, you know, like you said, you worry and you, you know, you do your best, but how did you parent her to allow her um, the space to, to, she know she knew obviously the extent of what was going on, but to stay as positive as to keep her positive, but also keep yourself positive and, and, but to also sit in that reality of what was happening. I'm curious about that. I'm sure the others listening are probably curious about that too. So when Celeste was first diagnosed, um, my focus was on keeping her positive. And one of the things that happens with cancer, every person that you say cancer to has a different image that comes up when you say the word cancer. And adults usually associate cancer with all the people they've lost. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it brings in fear. It brings in anxiety. It brings in all of these motions. But children, for the most part, don't have any experience with cancer. Mm -hmm. My daughter didn't have any experience with cancer. What exactly is cancer? Cancer is cells that are growing where they shouldn't. They're not all the emotions that we associate. It's just cells that are growing where they're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we simply told Celeste, is you have some cells that are growing in your brain that they're not supposed to be there. So the doctors are gonna do this treatment to try and get rid of them. Now, what I know about chemo, and I'm horrified about chemo and how horrible those drugs are and how sick they make people, I don't need to tell her that because we don't have to look at that yet. We just look at the day to day. Okay, today, this is what we have to look at. Now, after she's had a round of it and she knows what we're about to go through, the children are amazing. And they are just so willing to do what you ask them to do. And so the focus became on, okay, how do we just remain positive about this? And go, okay, today's gonna be a hard day. This is, um, day six of treatment and it's the um there were different drugs that she had to take on different days and they did different things to her and it was just like okay how do we just make her comfortable and find things that she was happy and surround her with love and support so we put sticky notes all over her room for all the people who were praying for so she didn't feel alone we made sure that she had access to skype so that she could Skype with some friends and with family members because she'd be isolated. Um, she would go through different stages in her treatment. She had to be in isolation. So she wasn't exposed to germs because they had dropped her immune system down so low. And so we, and they called it an isolation room. And so instead I changed the name and we didn't call it an isolation room. We called it her healing room. Mm because she was going in there to get better, to heal. And so what we did is, and the room is a little room with a glass door, with a glass sliding door. So the nurses can always look in and see how she's doing. And so we took that glass sliding door and I got markers that you can write on windows. Uh, and I wrote the name of every person that was praying, loving her in her family. And just so that it became a healing room for her and she felt surrounded but because nobody else could come into the room, at least she still knew that she was loved and supported. 
And with Haley doing the same treatment as Celeste, Haley was actually one month ahead. Haley was diagnosed at the beginning of February and Celeste went in at the end of February. So their treatments were just staggered by a month. Um, and so Haley um, had done one round of treatment before Celeste. So Lori would let me know what was coming up and what that was like for Haley. And then when they started around, they were practically one on top of each other on the round, except for Haley was one day ahead. Mm. Uh, wow. And so Lori would tell me that Haley's counts had just gone up the next day. And so I would then say to Celeste, Haley's counts went up yesterday. And sure enough, hey, so, because now I was telling Celeste's mind what she's supposed to do, that, oh, now you're, you're, it's your turn for your counts to go up. And she would just mimic whatever I told her. And because our minds are so, they're so impressionable, and especially children's. Mm -hmm. And so we would just, and when the doctors came in, they'd want to tell me what could go wrong. And I'd say, no, I want you to tell me what can go right. What's the best case scenario? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that's what we're shooting for. I don't want to suggest to Celeste's body that all these terrible things are going to happen because mm -hmm. then she'll go, Oh, is that what I'm supposed to do? And it will, and our bodies will do that. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to suggest to her all the things that could go right. And that became our focus through the treatments. Mm -hmm. um, at the end, it was a different story. When Celeste, uh, she had had, now Haley, Celeste's, Celeste and Haley, Haley's tumor had completely shrunk and were completely gone. And she got what is called the no evidence of disease or NED. And so this is what we're telling Celeste we're shooting for. We're like, okay, Haley has her no evidence of disease. So we expect that to happen for, for Celeste next. Celeste's tumor had shrunk 98 and a half percent. Wow. There was just, just this tiny little bit left. So we were expecting the next MRI, it was going to be completely gone. And then that's when the doctor called me and said, actually, this last MRI, they found some additional spots. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're supposed, this is supposed to be her no evidence of disease. You're not supposed to tell me that there's more cancer growing. That's, that's not part of the deal here. This is not what we've worked for. This is not what we've prayed for. No. And then that's when I started to go into fear again. Mm -hmm. And, and I was just like, no, this can't happen. And, and then I'm like, okay, well then we'll just do more. Like, well, we'll, uh, because her doctor wasn't suggesting any more treatments. She didn't know what to suggest. And, and I'm like, well, then we'll go somewhere else in the world. We'll find something else. We'll pray more. We'll get, we'll do more therapy, whatever. And I'm going into this frantic, well, we'll just do more and be more. And, and all of a sudden, I got this realization that as much as I was willing to do anything in the whole world for my little girl, it wasn't my fight. That this was up to Celeste. And if she felt like she could fight this, because this was hard stuff. Mm-hmm really, really hard stuff that she was doing. And then I realized this was up to her. If she felt like she could fight this, we would fight it. But if she felt like she couldn't do it anymore because it was too hard, then that was okay too. Mm. 
we would just simply make every day that she had left wonderful. And in surrendering to that, I got the greatest peace in realizing no matter what happened, it was going to be okay. And then I had that conversation with Celeste and let her know, hey, sweetie, the doctor said, and I said, if you want to, if you want to fight this, we'll help you fight this. But if you feel like you can't do this anymore, that's okay too. She's like, no, mommy, I want to fight this. I'm like, that's my little girl. <laughs> and over the next few months, that's what, what our intention was to do more of that. We were asking more people to pray, but we didn't have a plan yet. And at Christmas time, she started to develop headaches again. Her initial symptoms had been headaches that woke her up in the middle of the night and double vision. Mm. And at that Christmas time and, and New Year's, um, those symptoms started to come back. And so even without seeing an MRI, we're like, okay, we know this is not good. And the doctors had her come in for the next MRI to see where she was at. And that particular day we went to the MRI, excuse me. And then her stepmom stayed with a neurologist to take a look at um, the scans. Um, her stepmom was a neurology a med student. And um, so then I took Celeste to get a bone scan. And while we're sitting in this room and they're making us wait, because that's all you ever do in the hospital is wait. And she's laying on this bed and she's got one of those warm blankets on her and I'm sitting in a, in a rocking chair and I've got like a warm blanket on me cause it's freezing in this room. And, and they're just like, we just have to wait and wait. And I said to her sweet, to uh, her step, uh, her stepmom sent me a text and said, it doesn't look good, but I didn't know what it doesn't look good means. Mm -hmm. So I simply turned to Celeste and I said, Hey sweetie, if you could do anything in the whole world, what would you want to do? If you could go anywhere, if you could meet anyone, if you could learn anything, if you could try anything, if you, what would you want to do? She says, like, oh, mommy. She says, I want to go to Europe. I want to go to Big Ben in, in London, England, and I want to see the Eiffel Tower in Paris, and I want to go to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy and try Swiss chocolates in Switzerland, and, and I want to have Pao Chocolat in Paris, and, and I'm writing all these things down. And I was like, if you could meet anyone, who would you want to meet? She goes, Robin Williams. I'm like, anyone else? Celine Dion and Anne Hathaway. We had just seen Les Mis, and she loved Anne Hathaway from um, uh, Ella Enchanted and uh, Princess Diaries and, and all of those. So I wrote Anne Hathaway down, and then we're huge Doctor Who fans. And so she wanted to meet the cast of the Doctor Who TV show. So I wrote all these things down. She said, I want to, she said, I want to learn how to make Nanaimo bars and I want to go rock climbing and, and I want to try new foods. And so I'm writing all of these things down. And then we go downstairs after the scan was over and the doctor sat down with us. Um, they had the results from the MRI and they said Celeste had so much cancer in her little body. They only expected her to live days or weeks. And while you're not supposed to tell me that I only have days or weeks with my little girl, they were supposed to tell me that I had months or years. They weren't supposed to tell me it was days or weeks. 
And they said because she had a tumor in her brain, she wouldn't be able to fly. She couldn't, that wasn't going to be possible. But we had made a decision already that we were simply were going to make every day that she had left wonderful. And that's what we did. Was we sent a message out to everyone we knew and said, here's the deal. Celeste doesn't have much time left. If you know anyone who knows anyone knows anyone who can help us to make this dream come, these dreams come true for her, please help us. And when you ask people to help, people are amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. They will move mountains to help each other. And that's exactly what happened for us. And that was on a Friday when we found out. I sent that message out. The following Wednesday, we're at her dad's house. And some man calls, just like this, someone calling. (laughs) And he asked for our daughter. And her stepmom says, well, can I ask who's calling? Who's the stranger calling our daughter? It was David Tennant, the actor, calling from London, England. He was the actor from the Doctor Who TV show. He was our favorite. My goodness. He had been in Harry Potter, and he talked with Celeste, and it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. She's sitting at the kitchen table talking to him like she does this every day of her life. They talked about spaghetti bolognese that are favorite foods, but doesn't do that. Um, so and the rest of us were on the extension in the hallway listening to this conversation she's having with David Tennant and we're like oh my goodness oh my goodness David Tennant's on the phone wow what what an amazing story well it got even better because the next day Robin Williams Skyped from with her from his hotel in in Salt Lake City. He was on tour. The day after that, someone got hold of Aunt, uh, Celine Dion, and she called before her show in Vegas and dedicated the show to Celeste. And the day after that, um, Anne Hathaway Skyped with her for 45 minutes. Amazing. Wow. Wow. So just asking, right? Like, I mean, you know, we, at the top of our time, you said, you know, you, you reach out, but you, the, the part that I, and I think I, I see it all the time when I coach or, or um, in, my, in my practice as a psychotherapist is to be able to be vulnerable. It's one thing to, to be able to give, right? Mm-hmm. But it's another thing is to really, and I think that's the core element that you are sharing the story and it's being so beautifully um, demonstrated is but being vulnerable enough to say um i need you because people are you know people are pretty amazing when you do that because you can have all the needs but you bottle it up and then you don't allow people to do things that come naturally to them which is to basically to give we are meant to give and receive Mm -hmm. you know truly in this world and what a what a powerful thing that you put it out to your network and what a ama- what an amazing thing for Celeste to have experienced. Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I'm truly I'm I'm touched on such a profound level. I know I'd heard it before, but just you know, I'm I'm my my heart is um 
so touched when I hear the story all over again. It's, a, it's amazing. I'm sure everybody listening is feeling the same way. Um, you know, resilience is quite, quite the thing. And what I hope people hear from hearing your story is that it doesn't matter what you come from, what you experience, but then you know that all of us are meant, to, we're put here for a reason. And to be able to share this, this you know, awe-inspiring, so I don't even know if I could call it a story, an experience with the world um, to help others realize that it doesn't matter what you're going through, that, you know, you can still, you can still enjoy, you can still find the positive lining in something, you can still, you know, um, talk about what you dream about, what, what you love, you know, you don't have to buy into the, to the negative because the brain and the body is constantly listening. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yes. And then the fact is that if something has to happen, and like you said, we all have a timeline and if it's our time is to think about, you know, what is it that I need to do even more of because maybe my end is near, mm-hmm. you know, which is, which is hard for most of us to think, but truly if you start to look at it like that, it really makes us realize, you know, how much more we can do with our lives. Um, to be able to to live the fullest life, to be able to to give messages or to do th- deeds out there in in the world. In what ways can we be loving others and also expressing gratitude and recognize that we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring? What are we doing today that matters? And have we let people know how much they matter to us? And know that it's not the end either. One of the things that I did learn in losing my mom and my sister so young is that relationship didn't end. That I have continued to feel close to my mother over the years. I have literally felt her hands on my shoulders. I've heard her whisper in my ear and tell me the things that I needed at the time. And I was able to let my daughter know that, that that relationship would be able to continue. And I've been able to do that with Celeste as well. It's just, it's just a different relationship now. Mm-hmm. One that you bring with you all the time and it's in your heart. And that, you know, to have had the privilege to have had her as many years that you did, um, what an amazing thing to have had that, that level of love. Um, mm-hmm. Something that, you know, none of us could put a price on, uh, that, that possibility to, to love versus, and so many people when they're hurt, they go through the rest of their life in fear, like you said. And, um, you know, and they cut themselves off from, from connection once they've lost. I think that's the, that's the biggest lesson that I, I'm gaining here today just from uh, listening to you. And I'm, I'm just sure I'll get a lot of feedback about what you shared. Laura, it's, it's, um, it's been breathtaking. I don't know if breathtaking is the right word, just listening um, to what you're, you're doing out there. Um, the fact that you can give guidance to others that, that need the support. So I want, I want you to tell everyone, um, and I don't know if you have any last words before you tell people where they can get a hold of you, because I'm sure there would be a lot of people that will want to be connected, um, you know, or just have questions for you about some of the things that you've shared with these two beautiful uh, little girls that um, sounds like, um, you know, they would have been so impressive to have met. Thank you. Yeah. They are. I'm so glad I get to tell the world about them. So if you know anyone who uh, is battling cancer at the moment, especially childhood cancer, they can visit my website, Two Mothers, One Prayer. 
Um, and later this year, I'll be hosting a podcast called Hope, Strength, and Courage, specifically for cancer parents. Um, but if most of us um, are helping others in other ways, so it could be an elder, elderly parent, it could be caregiving children, it could be um, taking uh, care of others in other ways. And I put together workshops called Soul Chocolate, Taking Care of You to, As You Take Care of Others. If you'd like more information on the 10 key things, takeaways that you can do as you're taking care of others, then go to my website, lauralane.ca, and sign up for our newsletter. And we'll make sure that you have that information so that you're better prepared for the caregiving that you're doing in your own life. Because we all have an opportunity at some point. So I, I think I've had, uh, I've been struck uh, so much by um, spending more time with Laura. And I, I know I've known Laura probably for about a year now, and um, but have not spent as much time. And I feel privileged to have, have, have uh, heard so much more. And I want to I wanna learn more also, Laura. Realize that we have all the gifts that we need. And we will you know, be pricked and prodded along the way. But don't let that deter you from what you're meant to be and why you're here. And, you know, it doesn't have to be something huge in the world other than to think, you know, how can I make a difference with what gifts I've been given? And we all have them. Um, and if you don't know what it is, like Laura said, just, just spend some time by yourself. Walk in, walk in nature. Um, play a nice piece of music and put yourself into that state where you really are allowed to listen deep down inside. Like she said that she knew that space was always there. And some of us, we, we run so fast that we don't listen. So, so stop and listen to what is it that I meant to give back and, and try to give back something, whatever it is, whether it's helping an elderly neighbor, um, you know, with to cut their grass or to, um, do something small that you know is going to make a difference in someone's life tomorrow. Um, and resilience is something that it's a muscle. We, it, it comes to us um, by just practicing small little th acts uh, that we can do on an ongoing basis. Um, so thank you again, Laura. It has been uh, amazing spending the time with you. And for anyone uh, needing more information on me, um, you can reach me at roxanderhodge.com. Uh, I'm a keynote speaker and a trainer, and I speak on mental wellness and resilience. So again, take care, Laura, and we'll connect soon. Thank you, Roxanne. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.